Hello, I'm Howard Miller, the contributing editor and podcast host of The Daily Journal. And on this podcast, we're delighted to welcome as a guest, Pankit Doshi, a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery in San Francisco. Pankit Doshi has spent over 15 years counseling in the area, counseling and litigating in all areas of employment and labor law. He has handled matters of trade secret misappropriation, misclassification, restrictive covenants, whistleblower litigation, wage and hour litigation, wrongful termination, sexual harassment, discrimination, retaliation, and all other, really, the entire range of employment and labor law issues. In today's podcast, we will be talking about three separate areas within the podcast. First, we want to talk about Punkett at an area that he's been very active in, which is the issues that have been raised by furloughing employees and bringing them back to work in the area of restrictive covenants of employment in the context of the COVID-19 uh, that we are living through. Secondly, we will want to talk about the entire issue of the application of current labor and employment law to the increasing, to the growing, to the almost normal now amount of time that's being spent working at home. How do the wage and hour laws, the meal and rest break, the cost reimbursement, the various other laws that apply to employees physically present at a location apply when they're when they are working at home? And thirdly, we are going to want to talk about a, an achievement of Unkits in the community. In 2017-18, he was president of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. And we'll want to spend some time not just talking about that association, but about whole issues of the law for young lawyers and people entering the law from different backgrounds and under different constraints. So that is what we'll be doing during the hour. But first, I want to welcome Punkett and thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Howard. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the first. We're living in through COVID-19. But we were going through phases. Employees have been furloughed and are now being being brought back in some cases. Some cases beyond the furlough, they may have been laid off entirely and are now being brought back. What are the issues that are now raised by employers who may have furloughed employees and now under changing circumstances want to bring them back into employment status? Sure. Uh, the, you know, there are a number of issues that employees Employers are dealing with on that front. You know, as we know, when the pandemic really got heightened in the March timeframe, a lot of employers had the unfortunate choice to make their furloughs and layoff decisions, sometimes almost uh, quickly in, in short notice, just to keep things afloat. Things have, in many ways, gotten better, and in, in other ways, gotten worse. And so, when it comes to furloughs, and layoffs, bringing employees back into the workplace. Employers are considering, well, are we going to bring them back and are they going to be working remotely? Are they physically coming back to the workplace? Um, If they're physically coming back to the workplace, we know that each state has its own uh, set of regulations and guidelines on what a return to work is supposed to look like with social distancing and temperature checks and uh, and having compliant policies in place. If the workforce or some part of the workforce is going to remain remote, uh, employers have to look at what are the issues particular for them to make sure that they're complying with, and I know we'll get to this later, but the, the sort of local wage and hour laws for the state that uh, uh that they're that they're operating in, and so there are a number of issues there from a transition plan perspective about how to get to the next stage. Well, let's 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 talk first about the case that's purely in California. An employer has furloughed an employee. Uh, at presumably at the time of the employment, there was an employment contract. There may have been various uh, restrictive agreements on on confidentiality, non compete. Uh, the employee is furloughed uh, and then brought back. Uh, what are the issues? Does that original contract still completely apply, or does the do the employer and employee have to look at a new set of documents in terms of the employee coming back to work? Sure. In in California, the agreement would still apply if they're furloughed, then they're still technically a, uh, in an employment relationship with the employer, and if they have a restrictive covenant that says they're not permitted to. Um, solicit employees or solicit customers or use confidential information or things of that sort, 
those provisions would arguably apply, assuming, of course, that they're found to be enforceable. There has been a recent trend in California that uh, non-solicit of employee provisions are are deemed to be akin to a non-compete, which we know is largely unenforceable in California, other than a different set of circumstances. And so, uh, so there, the 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 restrictive covenants would still be potentially enforceable. The question, though, for an employer would be: if you've laid someone off or you furlough them, do you want to enforce the restrictive covenants, or do you? attempt to do so. One of the common things that we're seeing right now is there are uh, employees that either got laid off or furloughed or didn't have opportunities at their current place of employment, and they and their teams are leaving to go somewhere else. If they have a restrictive covenant that says they, they can't solicit other employees, do you as the old employer try to enforce that agreement, knowing that there wasn't opportunities for those employees in your place, and now they're, they're merely seeking to work somewhere else just for their livelihood purposes. How would a court look at something like that? That's an important consideration. For well, there are two issues there, though, I think that you're implicitly raising. One is a purely legal issue. The other is a policy issue for the employee player. But from a purely legal point, will there be issues about whether the covenant that otherwise would have been enforceable if the person had simply left and gone directly to another employer rather than having been furloughed, laid off, and obtained other employment? Does that raise a different set of legal issues? If we're we're talking about California um, and we're talking about the, the situation we're describing here, there isn't a reasonableness standard for enforcement of restrictive covenants the way that there might be in other jurisdictions. We see that in, uh, in Massachusetts where they have, uh, they have a statute that requires that it precludes enforcement of non-compete agreements against employees that are laid off or terminated without cause. In California, it'll depend on what's in the restrictive covenant language. There might be some restrictive covenants that are drafted that explicitly say these apply except if you're laid off or except if, if there's some type of termination without law. So that might be a one hurdle for employers to try to legally enforce the restrictive covenant. Another hurdle might be procedurally with the courts if they would try to enforce uh, the restrictive covenants in California. Which, are, which can be extremely tough to do unless it's tied to some type of misappropriation of trade secrets or, or the taking or use of some type of confidential information. If you go to the courts and you, you uh, as the old employer, try to get a, a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction, one component of which is to show some type of irreparable harm, it might be tougher with the courts to show make a showing of irreparable harm in the face of a global pandemic. What happens, and talk about an, another case which I think may raise other issues, because some of the major employers, uh, I think it's Facebook and others in Silicon Valley, have advised people they should work at home or work away from the office uh, for some period of time, perhaps through 2021. And in many cases, we hear of people leaving California because once you're working online, it really doesn't make any difference literally where on the planet you are as long as you have the, the, the technological connection. So suppose an employee from California who now has an existing uh, agreement does work away from the office online, but does it in Oklahoma or in Kansas or, or moves to any city outside, any state outside California uh, does that leave it open for the employer to impose additional restrictions of restrictions or choice of law that the employer might not be able to do if it were solely an in-California employment? I certainly think some employers might try to take advantage of that particular fact. And each is a different set of factual, fact-specific inquiries and factual circumstances. But I think it's fair to say 
if an employee is physically located in California and they only work in California, it's much easier for uh, for an employer to say the rules and laws of California apply versus if someone might be working remotely. In this day and age, uh, with the with the global pandemic and the example, Howard, that you just gave, I agree. We will be seeing a lot of employees work remotely uh, from other states because they either want to be close to their family or they uh, maybe want bigger space than they can get in California. But if they're still tied to working uh, for the employer in California, if they're getting paid from there, if that's where they're reporting to, that's where their management team is still based, it may not make as much of a difference where they are. It certainly will depend on the factual circumstances. There, There is a labor code, California labor code section called 920, section 925, that says that an, an employer can't require an employee who primarily resides and works in California as a condition of their employment to agree to a choice of law provision outside of California or a forum provision outside of California. And so what we will likely see is an uptick in litigation in those circumstances that, that you're talking about, Howard. But what does it mean to primarily reside and work in California if somebody's working remotely due to the global pandemic? Now, this issue raises for current employees who may have moved but now that there is a more widespread use of, of work outside uh, the home state, outside the office, it is uh, likely, in fact, that, that tech employers especially may start to recruit people outside California, uh, many of whom might not have come to live here because of high housing costs, for example. There may be a differential in salary because of living costs in other places. So instead of trying to recruit a, 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 a an employee, to come from the from the Midwest, someplace in the Midwest, for example, and facing all the barriers, the employers will now say, "Well, we've told everyone who now works here to work away from the office, so we're going to start hiring in these other states." So now we're hiring someone who lives and has lived in Illinois, for example, for a period of time, uh, or in in Kansas, and so we are now under Labor Code nine twenty five because that person we're now hiring has been in that other state for some time, and we can reasonably say does not then primarily reside and work in California. And it's conjunctive. It says primarily reside and work. So this is someone who wouldn't primarily reside. Does that open up opportunities to negotiate choice of law provisions, getting around California law restrictions uh, that the employer could otherwise not impose if the employee resided in California? It absolutely will. Uh, it absolutely will open up opportunities to negotiate around those, whether they're negotiated at the time of the formation of a contract with an attorney, which would potentially um, uh, take you out of the protection of Section 925 or even without an attorney, or whether that in a subsequent litigation where that becomes an issue. And in the example that you give, Howard, which I think is a good one, the fact that somebody has already been residing in another jurisdiction outside of California likely suggests that they primarily are not residing in California. On the work prong, uh, it, it would be the same thing. Are they being hired to work for the company in that jurisdiction? Are they based out of there? What does it mean to be based out of a place when mostly everybody is working remotely? And those are, uh, that's a body of law that's absolutely going to develop in the restrictive covenant space. Usually that body of law has been around an employee who works for a company out of a certain location, but spends, travels around the country or has customers in different locations around the country. You said something very important that I think it's worth emphasizing and that people not familiar with the statute we might need to emphasize, which is even under someone who works and resides in California, and 925 on its face applies. 925 does also contain an exclusion that you mentioned, that if the employee is individual represented, individually represented, 
by lawyer, by legal counsel in the employment contract, then that contract, so long as the employee is so represented, uh, can be entered into outside the restrictions of, of Labor Code 925. And, and the policy reason for that is if an employee is represented by a, a lawyer and uh, to assist with negotiation of the agreement, and if the agreement still has a choice of law or venue provision out that's not California, then presumably by virtue of having legal counsel, this employee was not taken advantage of by, let's say, somebody uh, or an entity with more resources. On the flip side, without legal counsel, it might be different. And that opens up the issue, of course, of the people outside California who primarily reside outside, where 925 might not apply because of the residency requirement. And for those new employees hired around the country, a legal counsel would not be necessary. Even even if the employee were not represented by legal counsel, uh, there would be freedom from 925 if it were determined that the employee did not primarily reside in California. So not Section 925 is it's one avenue that exists uh, pursuant to California law. There's also California's general public policy against restraining employees from against trade uh, that's been enshrined in numerous case law essentially finding non-compete agreements to be unenforceable other than in limited circumstances. Same with non-solicit of customers and um, now the trend toward non-solicit of employees. You have business and professions code section 1600, which says essentially the same. So Labor Code 925 tries to, tries to focus a lot of what's already been an existing body of law in California. But we have to distinguish uh, doing not the non-compete language where you're stopping people from gathering gaining employment or soliciting customers. It is still permissible to restrict and prohibit the use of confidential information in any context that the employee obtains while being employed. That's not – is that uh, it, it, it covered within the uh, restrictions on non-competes? Uh, that's absolutely covered in the sense – of, yes, absolutely, employers can protect against the use and disclosure and possession of their own confidential and proprietary. So the restrictions on use of confidential information, while we're talking about it, for those who are not that familiar with the area, the restrictions on the use of confidential information are in quite a separate category from the restrictions on future competition or solicitation of of existing customers. And employers still can have full protection of their own confidential information uh, with the employee. That's absolutely right. This is the range of issues. We're kind of talking about the effect of, of bringing employees back and, and uh, restricting restricting covenants and what if employees work in other states. Uh, there is also the second area that we are going to turn to, uh, which is a broader in terms of how the law will function over a long period of time. Before we turn to that, I simply want to remind uh, the listener that if you'd like MCLE credit, one-hour MCLE credit uh, for this podcast, uh, which you can listen to outside the Daily Journal paywall, and you may be, uh, at dailyjournal.com, uh, we'll bring you to the podcast outside the paywall or dailyjournal.com slash podcasts or on iTunes. And after listening to it, uh, you want to get one-hour MCLE credit uh, for listening to the podcast Go to dailyjournal.com. You will see a link to the MCLA test. You'll be able to take the MCLA test electronically, submit it, and you may obtain the one hour of MCLA credit uh, for listening uh, to this podcast. And it will cover the test here in terms of obtaining the credit. We'll cover everything that we've spoken about and that we will talk about. So let's turn now to this larger issue, which in terms, which really makes labor and employment law, I think, one of the most intellectually challenging areas in, in, in practice today, because we have all the historic labor laws, uh, the industrial wage orders in California, which encompass and other laws, wage and hour laws, meal and rest break laws, cost reimbursement laws, huge amounts of litigation, but they're not based on models. They were first 
based on factory employment than service employment. But the assumption of so many of that those laws, if not all of them, is that there is a physical place where workers work in many cases. So how do we now apply, and this is going to be, an, I think, an issue over decades moving forward, how do we now apply those laws to a non-exempt employee, an employee to whom those laws do apply, who works completely from home? Uh, how do the wage and hour laws, for example, how will they be administered? How will we, we know whether they're being administered and what remedies might employees seek in terms of how they apply to work at home? Absolutely. That's, that's one of the bigger questions that employers are struggling with as more and more making the decision to keep their workforce remote. Uh, you know, first and foremost, the labor code provisions in California, they still apply whether the, the employees are working uh, from home or whether they're, they're physically in the workplace. Companies have to remind themselves of that because sometimes uh, it's out of sight, out of mind. But that doesn't necessarily apply when it comes to the the California Labor Code. The, the best thing that companies can do is to take a clean review of all of their policies that apply to their employees, both exempt employees and non-exempt employees. Make sure that they've accounted for and revise them to address the changed circumstances of these individuals employment. One example is for non-exempt employees, you want to make sure that they get paid for all hours worked. You want to make sure that they're not doing any work off the clock, that uh, you know, if a supervisor texts their assistant at 9 p.m. at night and asks for something and that assistant does something because they're working from home, technically that uh, assistant should get paid for that time, and they should clock that time. So employers need to make sure that their time recording policies are clear, that employees know the expectations of what's to be complied with. They should be clear on if and when they're supposed to take their, their California-compliant meal breaks and the rest breaks, no exceptions. You might have a situation where maybe somebody calls you, but you're on a meal break, there shouldn't be any obligation to pick up that phone if you're on an off-duty meal break. Companies need to make sure that things like that are built into their policies, but that they're also conveyed to employees and management about what those expectations are under those policies. But in terms of implementing those requirements, uh, let's talk about some of the issues. I mean, people working at home, they're often taking care of their children at the same time. Uh, they may be eating a sandwich at the desk while talking on the, on, on the telephone. Uh, some of the work is done on computer or online in discussions, but a fair amount of work may be done simply reading and writing and doing other things at a desk. Uh, they may be doing this, uh, many people, after put children to bed, do it late at night. Uh, there's going to be, in terms of implementation, are there not going to have to be developments in the precision of record keeping here and agreements as part of the employment agreement in order for an understanding of uh, what are the hours that are being worked and how much time is being taken uh, for the meal or rest break? How does that, in the real world of people, because we've all seen people, you know, we, we get on Zoom calls and people are taking care of their children at the same time. And, and uh, what kind of recording capacities and are we going to have to have and systems in order to avoid a huge number of disputes here? The, the most important thing is going to be accurate record. Uh, that's going to be the most important for, for work that the employees are doing. They absolutely want to make sure to record that, especially if they're being paid by the hour so that they get adequately compensated for all hours of their work. Now, you're absolutely right, and this is where it gets complex. Somebody might be working for 15 minutes, but then they have to take care of their kids for the next 15 minutes, and then maybe they go back to try to work. How do you record that in a way that accurately reflects your day? Presumably, you want to be as accurate as possible, depending on what the timekeeping system might be, but that does impose real challenges. And so, uh, you know, what am 
both the employer and the employee should do is ensure to try to be as accurately record this information as possible. The employee should raise their hand if, if they're not uh, able to work on a particular day. They got to take a doctor's appointment. They make sure that they get the time off as opposed to being logged in as if it's a work day, but then sort of not necessarily be available. And so that two-way communication is absolutely important. But it, it does pose practical hurdles and, and challenges. And uh, there is going to be some degree of accuracy that's going to be lost. Of course, we've seen that. I mean, the, the, the complexity of it is shown by the cases in, that have decided wage and hour issues, where issues have been whether, you know, the time spent having the clock out of a job should be counted as well. And I, I think the Supreme Court, you know, said the technology is not decisive here. It's possible you could count 20 seconds, but if you can, but whatever is, whatever time is spent and work related, uh, putting on work clothes, clocking out, uh, uh, that has to be counted as part of the wage and hour laws. And that's, as I understand it, that's all done in the clear context of people being physically present where it's much easier to deal with those issues of calculation than it is when people are are never in the workforce. I, I, how is this going to... Do you, do you envision a fair amount of negotiation between employer and employees and employee groups over what these rules will be uh, before this really becomes widespread? I, I do envision that there will be some discussions related to it. I will say that, you know, in, in certain at, certain parts of California, working from home is not a foreign concept. You see a lot of tech companies in the Bay Area before COVID, where they had some parts of their workforce that would work remotely on certain days or certain days of the month or of the week. And so there are systems that can be done and devised uh, where, where it's possible to accurately and appropriately allow employees to work from home when in doubt uh, it, the employer should err on the side of being conservative and ensuring that the employees get compensated for all their time. The complexity we're dealing with now is somebody's working from home but the daycare facility is closed, the school is closed, and now they have to take care of their kids as well. That's where the, that's where the, what makes this different from just a regular remote work situation. Yeah. So that difference is what's going to lead to, I think, both employer and employee side groups having further discussions down the line. I wouldn't be surprised if the legislature weighs in as well. But of course, you're, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, people have been working from home and doing it successfully. But there's, I think what frames this, this issue and what the complexities may be is it's very different to have worked from home in an environment in which everything was succeeding. Everything was going up. The company was succeeding. The new th services were being developed. Uh, everyone is looking forward to the future. Uh, even if there was some tension, why complain about it? Because the growth, and I've got a great job, and everything is going well, that's a very different environment than an environment where people may be will face layoffs after having worked at home for a period of time, uh, where people will be tense in terms of what their prospects are. And when you switch from an environment of optimism, uh, which I think we can fairly say in the tech industry and until March of this year, people were working in, uh, to an environment of concern, if not fear, those are environments in which legal issues are often looked at from a very different perspective. And isn't the change of the environment that it's going to require greater care in terms of thinking of these things actively before anything occurs? That's, that's absolutely true. And it's a, it's a different environment. There are different concerns. It sort of goes to something I said earlier in the restrictive covenant space, that there's, there's the legal issues and then there's the policy issues or the communication between employer and employee. And that is that uh, employees certainly have to continue to be feel valued. Uh, they have to, you can put in as an employer as many stringent uh, requirements as you want to try to comply with some of the laws. But if it doesn't work for the employees in some instances or it's difficult to do or 
challenge, there are going to be problems. And that's why it is to have a healthy workforce and have a strong work culture. There is going to have to be uh, a lot of uh, uh, collaboration on both sides, whether it's HR or management or an executive team and the larger work. Well, this is especially true. I mean, it makes it so, again, so complex in the tech industry where teams working together uh, on critical areas, uh, developing new computer applications, uh, working in artificial intelligence, in whatever they're working in, the, the, the classic, as we all understand, the teams, the stories of people working all night and of working for 36 hours in a row. Uh, the kind of energy and intensity that's put into that creative process has been at the heart of um, of, of, of developments in in the high tech area in whatever area it's been, uh, and and suddenly because of the change in environment, people are going to start looking at those practices which have contributed to so much and been thought of in different ways people may start to look at those practices in a different kind of way and what kind of impact does that have on the productivity of the company and 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 and, and of the of the high tech developments that that's absolutely true i will say that from a legal perspective there there are likely different considerations for a non-exempt workforce and for an exempt workforce and when we talk about an exempt workforce of like uh, groups of individuals in the tech industry who focus in, in a large chunk of their work is the collaboration aspect. That is an area where companies and those teams and those people, they are struggling with how to remain interconnected. And that's why there are some employers who, even though their workforce is continuing to work remote, they might open up their offices under very limited circumstances following certain protocols for teams of people to get together to engage in this exact process we're talking about. But I do fear that that is something that's lost among workforces that aren't able to do that. And this, of course, opens up what we've called the whole misclassification area, classification not just within employees about whether they're non-exempt, which means they're governed by all the labor code provisions we've talked about, whether they're managerial employees, whether they're administrative employees. And it also opens up the whole area, the larger area of classification between independent contractors and employees, uh, which was litigated in dynamics and has been so much at the, at the heart of so much legislative activity and, and in other litigation. So these classification issues, especially in the high-tech world, in terms of what's necessary, if not necessary, what been regularly practiced for success, the classification issues are going to become even more important, aren't they, in terms of dealing with, with the way people work in high tech? Absolutely. It's, it's going to push it uh, to the forefront even more than it already is. In California, a new law was passed earlier that went into effect earlier this year called AB5, Labor Code 2750.3, that talks about the test to determine whether someone's an employer, independent contractor, and of course, has certain exemptions for that as well. And so that that is an issue that's at the forefront of every Californian, California employer and employee's mind. And this remote workforce, working from home remotely, independent contractors who are working remotely as well, all of this will impact that law and, and that developing body of law that goes forward. Well, but it, and of course, we as, as we all know, AB five was was uh, came about because of the, US, uh, the California Supreme Court decision in the Dynamics case, uh, dramatically changing the definition of workers and independent contractors. And one of the one of the uh, three uh, part tests requires that the independent contractor be in a different business, essentially than the business of the person that's engaging them as an independent contractor. So it's not going to be easy for a high-tech company that does uh, development of, of computer programs to claim that a computer programmer who's doing exactly what the company does uh, can be an independent contractor unless the legislature deals with the issue. 
And given the importance of high-tech industries to California, I mean, the issues, you, you deal with these, we deal with these as lawyers, and everyone focuses on the technical aspects and the effects. But how the labor and employment laws develop in these areas in terms of the growth of high-tech industries in California is really a central issue, not just for the high-tech companies, but for the whole economy of California in terms of how it subsequently develops. I mean, when you put these issues together, simply talking about now if there develops a pattern of the companies uh, hiring directly people from outside California, uh, where, for example, they may be able to, uh, outside 925, these issues come together, enter into employment, you hire someone in Kansas, for example, uh, and you apply the Kansas labor laws to them. So dynamics might not apply at all. You may be able to contract out of it. And so there will be incentives here, will there not, for high-tech companies to start to directly employ people outside California. So some of what they consider to be uh, the difficulties of these tests in California uh, can be avoided by the choice of law provision in the contract with the person who primarily resides in another state. You will absolutely see employers be creative with with uh, independent contractors. You will absolutely see, and we have seen, many employers specifically employ contractors in other jurisdictions. You'll also see many employers like startup companies that'll think twice before classifying some of their initial workforce as contractors where, look, they're just struggling to make payments as a startup company, and they're looking at, we just need to get some some qualified workers in here, but we can't classify them as employees. We're going to classify them as contractors. You see a lot of that among startup companies, and we've seen some of that already change. And the, the key for employers is they're going to have to be very careful on if they go the route of classifying folks as independent contractors, what the real consequences of that are. Or as you say, they'll they'll look outside of California to do so. Well, we've been talking about now these labor law issues. First, the, the uh, immediate COVID-19 effect on the furloughs and rehiring. And on this broader subject, uh, I, there's one other area I want I do want to talk about before we move on that, that I... Uh, it in, in my notes, and I, I just think it illustrates the complexity of this, and I don't want to let it go. We've talked about wage an hour and meal and rest break, but there will be, and it, it's worth a minute mentioning it, a whole question on cost reimbursement as well in terms of people who work at home, in terms of the cost of, of, uh, of the Wi-Fi, for example, uh, expenses that otherwise might be personal that are now being used for business purposes. So that also will be a set of issues that, that employers and employees have to deal with now as they focus more on the legal requirements of working at home. Will that be part of the complexity that goes on here? It, it, it will be, and it already is. We've, we've seen that uh, as soon as the working from home shelter and place orders were put into place, many non-exempt employees would ask employers, well, I have Wi-Fi at home, but I don't have Wi-Fi with the type of bandwidth to be online all the time to do the work that I'm supposed to do to be on uh, on a variety of virtual calls. And so what uh, can I get reimbursed for going up a step or two in the quality and bandwidth of my Wi-Fi? We've already seen that happen. So those issues of what can be reimbursed, what are necessary business expenses, especially if someone's using now their own cell phone uh, to make work-related calls from those will be critical and are critical. And again, that's part of the uh, employer making sure that they look at their policies on expense reimbursement to make sure that they're compliant. And in terms of Wi-Fi, I think we, we can't leave the discussion without mentioning that as increasing numbers of people work at home, we're told by the cybersecurity people that one of the great vulnerabilities is the home Wi-Fi system of the uh, uh, of the person working from home. It's the easiest way to, to get in to what otherwise would be protected information. If someone's on site, it may be one thing, but if someone's at home, even if there are password and other protections put in, 
because the Wi-Fi system is at home, there are vulnerabilities in terms of cyber attackers coming in that are very difficult and can be very expensive to protect against. Uh, and that requires training. And so there's a whole additional set of issues uh, in terms of increased use of, of home Wi-Fi, uh, including the capacity problems given the number of people, but especially the security problems, which to properly deal with, are neither inexpensive nor easy. Uh, and since confidentiality and security are so heavily a part of what people are doing, there will inevitably be expenditures there, however they are classified, uh, that add to the work from home requirement. And I take it that's also a part of what employers and employees uh, have to face as working from home becomes more or less standard. Certainly, that's it's one of the bigger issues that often goes um, unnoticed about the privacy and security concerns. Well, we've spoken about now all all the labor law issues, and I I, uh, wanted to make sure we talked about the cost reimbursement as well. But I want to now turn to another part of Punkett's life, which is so interesting and I think so important to everyone in the profession and considering entering the profession. Punkett in 2017 and 18 was president of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association and has been active widely in South Asian and other bar associations. Punkett, tell us about the national, uh, the association you were president of, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, what it does and your work in it and and what it has achieved and is working on. So the organization is fondly referred to in shorthand as NAPABA. And the PABA is, uh, represents over 50,000 Asian Pacific American attorneys around the country, uh, has over 80 plus local affiliates and jurisdictions around the country. And it advocates on behalf of Asian Pacific American attorneys in the profession, promoting, uh, retaining, advancing APA attorneys, as well as providing mentorship, um, uh, relationship building, networking, and then the PABA is also very active from a poly- policy perspective in the community, standing up for issues on voting rights, um, voter disenfranchisement, um, access to access to justice issues, immigration issues, a number of legal issues that that uh, play into what it means to be a diverse uh, Asian Pacific American attorney. I was honored to serve as president when I did. Uh, Well, when you talk about the Asian Pacific Association, of course, uh, one question is, what are the common issues? Because we're really talking about people from a variety of backgrounds, uh, from from Japanese, South Korean, uh, Chinese, Indian, among the major, the Southeast Asian nations. Are there common issues that affect all uh, uh, th- th- those in, in the Asia Pacific area? You might have individuals from a number of different countries, backgrounds from all over the world. Common issues are focused on diversity in the profession. They're focused on access to justice. So diversity in the profession, how do we advance diverse attorneys to the judiciary? How do we, uh, how do we advance diverse attorneys public service? How do we get more diverse law students to enter the profession? How do we keep them in the profession? Regardless of background, we want the profession to accurately reflect the the community that we all live in. And so NAPABA is the national voice for Asian Pacific Americans in the legal profession. And the, the scope can be wide ranging from providing scholarship opportunities all the way up to and through simple networking opportunities to build relationships so that you have a wider network. And did I hear you correctly that there are 50,000 members? That's correct. 50,000 plus. I think that makes it, in terms of a voluntary bar association, one of the largest bar associations in the, in the country, if not the world. Uh, it is. Uh, the, the ABA, of course, is the largest. Uh, and uh, there are a handful of national minority bar associations as well. The PABA is certainly one of the largest. 
And what are the major, let's talk about, uh, you know, one of the interesting things in terms of a- a- Asian Pacific a lawyer and involvement in the profession are clearly when you look at the enrollment numbers uh, in, in universities, the percentages of, of Asian Pacific students, for example, at UCL and Berkeley and the Ivy League schools, uh, and a significant number of, of those may choose and may be made comfortable in joining the labor legal profession. So we really are talking about the opportunity to engage a very large number of, of, of lawyers uh, in, in the diversity efforts. What do you do to help move that along? Do you have mentoring programs? Do you go to colleges? Uh, what, what are the kind of things you do to help on, on the advancement front there? The PABA has a national law student, National Asian Pacific American Law Student Association that it's also affiliated with. It's again to open up the pipeline, sometimes as early as high school. Uh, you know, many uh, NAPABA members, they were the first of their family to either go to college or law school, first of their kind uh, in their family to be lawyers. So there, there was this, you know, we don't know what a lawyer is or what a lawyer does, and we don't know if that's that's right for us. And so we have programs in place to open up that pipeline um, early on through law school. And then while we'll see Asian Pacific Americans get into the law profession, they'll get into law firms or government or in-house or public public interests, the retention and advancement of APA attorneys, and frankly, a lot of diverse attorneys, if not all diverse attorneys, has been a challenge. And the PABA, like many other groups out there, um, you know, we'll put together mentorship programs, we'll put together uh, advocacy programs, we'll put together groups centered on substantive issues, centered on policy issues, all of which is designed to, to foster an environment where folks can grow uh, together and lean on one another. And have you found, in terms of obviously the, all the information that you have, barriers to retention and advancement within law firms? Uh, because of the, of the lawyers being of, uh, from the Asian Pacific communities, we uh, have we seen what? I'm sorry. Have you you mentioned barriers to retention and advancement. Are there? Have you found right. within law firms barriers and retentions to promotion, advancement, to partnership of lawyers that have come out of the Asian Pacific American community? We we've absolutely seen change. California Supreme Court Justice Goodwin Liu in conjunction with NAPABA and Yale Law School have put a fantastic project together called uh, the Portrait Project. And uh, Portrait Project 2 is on its way as well as in a study in a survey of Asian Pacific American attorneys for the country. And, you know, you, you, uh, an APA attorney gets into a law firm, but they're not able, they work hard, they build their hours, but for some reason, they're not getting the, they're not getting the, the, the strong assignments. They're not be able to move up. They're not leading teams. They're not, it's harder for them to make partners. And that study and Napaba as well has tried to figure out, well, what is it? Is it, are there not opportunities presented to the diverse attorneys? Are there, are there, um, uh, struggles that speaking up that maybe some attorneys face? And so, there absolutely are um, challenges, and one of the things that we try to do as an organization is to help attorneys and our members deal with those challenges, how to have those difficult conversations, how to speak up for yourself, how to make sure you get those assignments that you want, how to make sure you move up so that your hard work is paid off. We know that things like relationship building, having mentors, having advocates, that's incredibly important, and APA attorneys sometimes have not been the best at doing all of that. Yeah. What you're doing in this area is, and, and one of the reasons I always like on the podcast talking with, with, with great lawyers, as you are and what you've accomplished in the profession, is that the model of being a great lawyer is not just representing your clients brilliantly, and it's not just being an advancement in the profession, but it's really, as well, helping others who may share your background, others who have barriers in entering the profession, and in realizing that being a member of the bar and being a lawyer is not just an aspect of private gain, but an aspect of public service. 
And so one of the reasons I always like to talk about what, what great lawyers are doing in that area is because it is so important a part of, of what being a lawyer is. And what you have done in this area really is a model uh, for what so many others are involved in and should be involved in, in moving younger lawyers, especially as the profession diversifies. We are going through uh, one of the great diversifications of the legal profession. Uh, simply given the demographics, the diversification will occur. And that it's important that people be mentored uh, to be brought into the profession and, and to help themselves and others as well. So what you were doing in that area, as well as your law practice, is, is a real credit uh, to you, to the McDermott, Will and Emery firm, and, and, and to the legal profession. And we're just so delighted that you joined us, Punkett. I do want to say to our listeners that in addition to getting MCLE credit, uh, that if you'd like to learn more about all these areas, the labor law area, the diversification area, there is an ex- extensive series of, of writings within the Daily Journal. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you have access to all of those. You can search for them. You can bookmark them. They're a treasure trove of information on all these issues. If you're not a subscriber at the dailyjournal.com page where you may be listening to this podcast, uh, you will see one of the blue buttons that simply says subscribe. And by clicking on it, you may see how to become a subscriber and have access to the phenomenal pieces that have been written uh, on all the areas that we've talked about. We thank you for listening. And we especially, Konkip Doshi, thank you uh, for the time you spent with us for this podcast and for everything that you were doing in the profession. Thank you so much.